0: Music for me, uh, it seems to be the the elixir, the fountain. Uh, you know, it's always given me my 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 best moments on planet Earth. Just being in the midst of of good or great music, you know. And it's very difficult to do. You know, I've got a lot of names on my resume. You know, uh, Natalie Cole, Aretha Franklin, Beck, Pavarotti, Lou Reed, Yo-Yo Ma, Renee Fleming, Tony Bennett. Whatever you can go through them. In terms of great music, this, even with those names, in terms of great music I've made, man, I would have to say it's, it's still rare to make really great music.
1: You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. This is Season 2, Episode 2 of Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today, you'll be listening to part one of a two-part conversation with Rob Mathis. Although you may not be familiar with Rob Mathis's name, chances are that you've been impacted by one of the many musical projects that his enormous talent has touched. Rob is an Emmy Award-winning, Grammy-nominated, Tony-nominated music producer, composer, arranger, singer, songwriter, keyboardist, and guitarist. The list of names that Rob has worked with is extraordinary. He has produced and co-written songs with Sting on his last three albums and was music director on Sting's The Last Ship World Tour with the Royal Philharmonic. As an arranger, Rob has written orchestrations for artists all over the stylistic spectrum, from Jay-Z to Elton John, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Wonder, Tony Bennett, Yo-Yo Ma, Luciano Pavarotti, and Panic at the Disco, just to name a few. In addition to all of this, Rob regularly releases his own eclectic, independent projects ranging from pop to blues to gospel and orchestral works. A few of his records include Evening Train, William the Angel, Flesh and Spirit, orchestral songs, and his latest release, Wheelbarrow. The songs on all of these records touch every area of life, but especially enter into the struggle for faith in a world that gives us so many reasons to abandon hope and belief. To give you a taste of Rob's genius, I'll be interspersing parts one and two of our conversation with a variety of songs. And now, from Rob's album, Flesh and Spirit, to start things off, here's Christ Came Back and Trash the Cathedral. All oh. Mathis, thank you so much for taking time to be on the program today. It's a pleasure. You have performed with so many different people and a lot of big names in a lot of different genres of music. You've been an arranger, a composer, a producer. Names like Sting and Bono and Bruce Springsteen and Luciano Pavarotti come to mind. It's pretty eclectic,
0: hasn't it? Pretty (laughs) eclectic.
1: Yet, I heard you say on your video, Beyond the Music, that you would trade all of that if you could not be a songwriter you'd give up all of that because you just want to write songs talk to me about what songwriting means to you
0: well what I meant to
1: them is that uh when
0: I was talking to kids at um Brigham Young and uh University of uh, Utah and what I meant was uh you know a lot of people have asked me when they hear my records Rob would you just rather do that you know, all the time, kind of be a pop star. And when I was in high school, I I, I did think that I was going to be a singer-songwriter and just do that all year round. But music has been such an abiding thing in my life. It's been every moment of every day, I just think and breathe music that when I, you know, discovered Mahler and Beethoven and Ellington and all this, you know, becoming an arranger and writing a big horn chart on an on a R&B song or writing a an orchestration for Renee Fleming, the great opera singer. Uh, That's what a wonderful thing to be able to do that. And yet I've been able to funnel some funds from that work over the last 20 years into continually making my own records. But I, you know, I had three kids. I married an an incredible woman. And uh, it's difficult to be a pop star when you're a family man and you're, You like working in a bunch of different genres and you're busy watering a lot of other people's gardens at the same time. But what I did say to the kids was not I would give it all up if I could just be a songwriter. Rather, if I knew that in order to work with those great people, I would have to give up songwriting, I I wouldn't have done it. Meaning that my work as a writer for myself and as a composer, I've always believed and still believe makes me better for them. Um, when I'm working with Sting and he wants me to solve a problem on a song, or if I'm writing a song with him. I mean, one of the strongest songs off the last ship record we we wrote together called Practical Arrangement, which which, uh, Branford Marsalis has since covered. Um, I'm better for him because I've been writing my own music since I was a boy. And if I had to give that up and only be on that treadmill
1: of writing for other people, I would have said no. You started performing and writing songs very, very young. and You also started touring and had a lot of success early on.
0: Well, you're kind. I mean, uh, I, I when I was young, when I was just about twenty, I I was toured with Chuck Mangione, the um, great jazz flugelhorn player, who's not as well known now, but I mean, he's one of those rare guys. Who had a huge pop hit with an instrument?
1: Feels so good. Feels so good. Yeah. And then the '84 Olympic theme. Song. Yep,
0: yep. Uh, Give it all you got. I think that was yep. called. Um, anyway, so that was a nice thing, and I, I played at the Empire Club in my early twenties on 42nd and Lex, and no, 48th and Lex. And, and Chris Bodie, the trumpet player, was in the band. Andy Snitzer, who's now Paul Simon's main tenor player was in the band mike davis went on to play with the rolling stones the drummer is now the drummer on the carol king musical and played with hiram bullock for years the bass player letterman yeah guitarist yeah yeah And, and the bass player played uh from this band at the empire club It eventually played for me when i musically directed vanessa williams tours so it was that was that was a cauldron of musicality it was incredible and uh i started writing when i was very very young my parents are both musicians dad's a classically trained clarinetist but secret bob dylan and beatles fan (laughs) and mom teaches chopin and beethoven and so i just got into it very early i loved it very very early and uh very grateful for it i mean i feel like it's all a gift you know i mean music i mean to me i know this sounds sacrilegious But instead of hearing a fire and brimstone sermon about the fourth chapter of John, sometimes I get closer to God by listening to Mahler's Ninth Symphony. Mm -hmm. That sounds very convenient. It's like, you know, you you talk to the Christian community, they're like, well, you got to be Sunday morning. You should be in church. And I, I would agree with that. But sometimes for me, listening to Bach gets me closer to the throne room, you know. So say more about how music touches your soul. I remember meeting a, a relative of mine, uh, Tammy, my wife. Her sister's husband is uh, has a sister who married a really sweet guy. And I remember trying to talk to him about music at one point. And he's a numbers guy. He's in, he's in, he's in business. He works at a bank. And he's very successful. And he's a lovely guy. But I had never spoken to anybody less musical in my life, and I think he would admit it. He's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't listen to a lot of music. What, what, what do you like? Well, I'm not a big music fan. I mean, and I just couldn't understand it. It was like someone saying they didn't like comedy. They didn't like to laugh or something, uh, because music for me just seems to uh, it seems to be the the elixir, the fountain. You know, it's always given me my 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 best moments on planet Earth, just being in the midst of, of good or great music, you know, and it's very difficult to do. You know, I've got a lot of names on my resume, you know, uh, Natalie Cole, Aretha Franklin, Beck, Pavarotti, Lou Reed, Yo-Yo Ma, Renee Fleming, Tony Bennett, whatever. You can go through them. In terms of great music... This, even with those names, in terms of great music I've made, man, I would have to say it's it's still rare to make really great music. You know, there are some people like Keith Jarrett, the piano player, is a, is a great example. Keith doesn't often make good music; he always makes great music because he's one of the greatest geniuses to ever play the piano. Herbie Hancock, I would say, is the same way. Um, you know, I would say that Springsteen has. An ability with, with words that even in songs not a lot of people know, like there was a song off his Wrecking Ball record called Jack of All Trades. You know, just these songs that Bruce might call his B-tracks that are just truer and more honest and more direct and more moving than... Any you know half of what you'll hear anywhere else. So there are certain people that are in touch and making great music all the time. You know when Sting was writing the Broadway show The Last Ship, every day he was coming up with new songs. Where we'd go, you know, I mean, just astonishing because he was in that zone. He was in that zone of writing about his childhood and the shipyards mm. and you know. So but in, you know but I've go, gone on a lot of sessions and most of the sessions I've been a part of over the last twenty years have been people making in-tune music, in-rhythm music, very accurately played music, well-written music, but great music, you
1: know, great
0: music, music that transcends the notes. The so say, say you more know.
1: about that, because that's leading me to ask, what exactly is great music?
0: Truly great music would be like uh, some of those Keith Jarrett Trio Records, Bernstein conducting Mahler's Ninth. Abbey Road, you know, Radiohead in Rainbows is
1: great. But music. you're you're referring to where it all comes together and there's something transcending about it. Say more there, what you mean by that.
0: Well, there's a message. There's a collective purpose behind the music. The message isn't overly, you know, hammered at or overwrought. But it, it's a you know, you think of the Radiohead record in Rainbows, for instance. It's a very creative band of art school students from Oxford that are smarter than than, they're, than they should be, um, but they're always searching. They're constantly searching, and there, there's a lot of despair in that band. You know, not I wouldn't necessarily give the record to a lot of my Christian friends necessarily, but in, but as a musician, when I heard it. It was music about possibility and uh, an openness, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. It wasn't verse, chorus, search chorus, bridge, chorus, out. And it was clearly a band of people wanting to be on the edge of what they could do and continually search out the best and most moving music they could make in their practice genre. You know, It moved me. It, and when I'm in that zone trying to seek that out, it's the richest and most and best place I could possibly be you know working besides staying throughout the last ship was a privilege I was I was next to a great creative who's blessed the world with big hit songs but who also happens to be brilliant and deep and lyrically astonishing and we were on the path of seeking beauty transcendence meaning and it's just it, it's an extraordinary experience
1: and that sounds incredible yeah, it, who are some of the other folks you've worked with where you've had that kind of an experience?
0: Well, I always love when I come come in contact with people who ha- who love music with the with the passion uh, that that I do, and of course, I've been fortunate that most of the people I'm I'm with now are that way. But I still remember Tony Bennett when I came up. And I, my job with him was to basically map out vocal duets. Like if you sing with Diana Krall or Stevie Wonder, I would help map out the duets. Well, let, let's have, let's have Diana come in here. We have to change the key for her because her voice is a little, you know. And, but then you come in on the bridge because the melody's lower on the bridge. We can say in her key. That kind of I was kind of the map guy, the vocal duet map guy. And I remember he was talking about Judy Garland, and he he found out. Somehow that I did not own Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. Wow, and he was so sweet about it, but he got a little ticked off. He's like, "Are you kidding me? You know she's the greatest entertainer that's ever lived. You know, you have to leave here right now. You've got to promise me you're going to go buy that record." And I went out and I got that record. That was a time when there were record stores. This is about ten years ago, uh, and uh, I bought it and us to it. It is transcendent. I mean, Judy Garland for all the the travails she went through in her life. I mean, she was a transcendent performer. And uh, Springsteen, I mean, when I went to do the string charts for the Wrecking Ball record,
1: you know. I just read his Born to Run. Unbelievable Oh, he's book. incredible. His vulnerability, his honesty, his Well, we,
0: we did all this. He was working on a project that was um, almost Jimmy Webb, Glenn Campbell-like. his, he, Almost an Americana project, a, a road project where he wanted to use some, some of that Jimmy web-like orchestration and they called me because i know jimmy well i've done string quartet arrangements for jimmy webb um i'm gonna me- musically direct a jimmy webb concert at Carnegie hall in a couple months and so i came in and i did a bunch of arrangements and then suddenly bruce started writing in another genre because he was writing about the end of uh i think it's a giant stadium or, or the the metal list or something whatever they tore down which we wrecking balls about and then he just he started writing about the heartland and what what working people were going through, and how you know this whole hillbilly elegy thing where working people wanna wanna think that the, that either the conservatives or the the liberals are going to an, answer their needs and they just they're just struggling. They need somewhere to meet them where they live, you know. And he wanted to write to that, and so he just he wrote this whole record in a matter of weeks. Wow. And he was on the road, he had about 40 songs written about something else and I said, "Bruce, you're you're incredible. Well, how does that work?" He's like, "Well, I, sometimes I stick my my shovel in the dirt right in front of me and I'm just I'm just I, and and accidentally I trip and the shovel goes to the right and I I just start shoveling there. And you could tell the guy wakes up to write and writes all day and thinks all day and i'm sure it drives patty and the kids a little batty because he is one of those great creatives He's yeah. one of the gifts god's given us you know uh in the last 40 years of writing but it's just interesting to be around that and of course everybody i've worked with i think all the great people i've worked with have have had that kind of i mean yo-yo ma the first thing i ever wrote for him was an arrangement for the centennial of the dallas symphony and he was coming to play Dvorak's cello concerto, which is the great cello concerto. And Vanessa Williams was on the program, and she loves Harold Arlen. So it was um, it was the idea of the Dallas Symphony uh, Board for me to write arrangements for Yo-Yo to have like cello obligato lines in these great Harold Arlen songs. And so um, I, I was so daunted. I mean, this was 1999. So I'm a much better orchestrator now. I've written, you know... 500 arrangements since then. But I agonized over it. He came in, and he treated it as if it was Dvorak. Wow. He got, brought me into the room, and he said, What about this? Can I? What if I bow it this way? What I do this? And he had more energy and more respect and love. And this is a giant. This is a musical giant. And this was a good arrangement, Michael. But this was not Dvorak. <laughs> and so that kind of love and grace... I find I've been very fortunate. I mean, you do hear about some musicians that can be very, very gifted and very, very difficult. I've been pretty free of that. I mean, I'm sure I've had some run-ins, but
1: and uh, we won't we won't answer we won't ask, right
0: right exactly. But most of it has been a just
1: a great blessing, you know. You mentioned Stevie Wonder a couple of minutes ago, and I was channel surfing, and it was during uh, Obama's inauguration. Yeah, and I stopped on the concert, the outdoor concert. At the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, Lincoln Memorial that you did. And I saw you sitting next to Stevie Wonder on a keyboard and Stevie was rocking his head back and forth, and you were rocking back and forth. What was that like to direct the the oh, inaugurative God. concert? My favorite record in pop history is Songs in the Key of Life. Oh, I love it.
0: I mean, everyone says Abbey Road or Stone's record or maybe Dylan's uh, Bring it, it All Back Home or Highway 61, Blonda. So Sir Duke, isn't she but lovely? Isn't she lovely as Pastime Paradise have a talk with god i wish i mean it's just a masterpiece and stevie at his best basically transcends the john his genre completely i mean he's just one of the great musicians in the history of pop music without a shadow of a doubt he's up there with james brown and prince and all these other people and i've I've got i've gotten a chance to work with him on, on a number of occasions in that same kind of music director mode where I'm where I'm working on a project with a bunch of different artists and Stevie's come in to play and I've had to interact with act with Stevie let me be honest I'm not like hey Stevie do this chord do this you know I'm normally the air traffic controller in this that situation yeah. and I'll play guitar and and, and I, I still remember I will never forget uh, MDing the Pavarotti and Friends benefits a number of years. Musical uh, director, yeah, music, yeah,
1: music director, as opposed and, to the the medical director. Yeah, exactly. Giving CPR, exactly.
0: Out. Yeah, and Steve and Stevie came in and did Higher Ground, and he had a the end of Higher Ground. He had this, like, was, um, it was, some, It was some phrase that the band could not get. And we had, perhaps at that time, the greatest drummer in the world playing, Steve Gad, who oh, any sure. drummer will know. Yeah, and studio st- guy. Used yeah, to Steve and Gann. Steve was convinced it was in 4-4, like it was... And I said, no, Steve, you, you can't think of it in 4-4. However syncopated it, it isn't. You just got to hear the phrase. And I was right. And Stevie, you know, uh, Stevie, yeah, boy, that's it. You know, <laughs> and... and <laughs> He's just a giant. I mean, what do you say? I mean, when I'm in, when I'm in the room with these kind of people, he came saying Fragile with Sting at Sting's 60th. He
1: gets on stage, and we all marvel. We just all
0: are grateful we're in the room with him,
1: you know? When you were a teenager writing songs and performing, did you ever imagine that you'd be working with folks like this? I had no idea. No, I really did think
0: I was going to be a just a singer-songwriter and work on my own music. That's uh, all I ever wanted to do. Anytime I would hear new, a new genre or a new master, I would want to chase it. And so I would spend, I would go off on tangents. I would study Mahler's ninth and transcribe the fourth, first movement for my mom and I to play on double piano, forehand, two pianos. And then I would, you know, uh, literally imbibe songs for swinging lovers the great
1: Frank Sinatra record just to check out those Nelson Riddle records. We have a a mutual friend that calls that being promiscuous with the genre. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: And it's tricky. There is, it can be said that maybe even most of the greatest artists in human history do practice within a particular language. They expand that language, but they're not trying to be eclectic. I mean obviously you look at Peter Gabriel or Paul Simon or Sting uh artists who you know we can all say have morphed and they they've had their different stages of their career but still there's that inimitable voice and they did make it on one genre initially right you know you don't get to abbey road and sgt pepper's without she loves me you know she loves you yeah 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 and I, and I want to hold your hand you know um and, and and that's been the one I think sometimes my weakness is that I'm I'm jumping around too much. But the thing I will say for myself is when I am working within these genres, I, I it's like I know nothing else. I treat it like it is my language. I, I live there, and and I was an iPod kid before an iPod was invented. I mean, in the front room, my dad would be listening to Peter Paul Mary and Dylan. You know, Peter Paul and Mary Ann, Bob Dylan, and my mom would be playing Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu and teaching the Beethoven Pathetique Sonata to her kids. And my uncle, who was married to my mother's identical twin sister, was a big band leader. And he was uh, uh, actually a big band writer, not a leader. He played like trombone with a bunch of big bands. And he would, he was the one that said, you got to listen to these Sinatra records. And my aunt played the New York City Opera. And then I met a bunch of people growing up. My, my, aunt, my adopted aunt, Jan, was a huge Motown fan. And I still will never forget the first time at, at seven years of age that I heard Never Can Say Goodbye sung by Michael Jackson. Wow. I mean, it was like a bolt from the blue. I mean, it was... a a transforming experience. That little kid singing like no one has ever sung since, except maybe Stevie. Uh, I was just a genre hopper. I just loved all this different music and followed it. And it led me to being a string arranger for people and a horn arranger for people and a choral arranger for people and an MD. My dad's a band leader. That's what he does. He teaches the band in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. He teaches band at four schools. He's now retired. But so I knew what it was like to have to corral cats. So um, that, that became a lot of my life.
1: So do you ever struggle being that musical air traffic controller or the guy behind the scenes with the arrangements? I know that you still perform with the Rob Mathis band, but uh, it sounds like most of what you do is kind of in the shadows of production. Is that hard for you?
0: You know, it hasn't been because, I mean, as as you know, when you, when you work on film or something, it, it's... It's the director of photography and and the director of the film that, that that has a big influence on the outcome. I mean, The Panic of the Disco record, pretty odd. Their second record, which I produced, I'm really proud of. It's a really energetic, deep record. These These kids are discovering the Beach Boys and the Beatles and they want to go there. And we mixed it at Abbey Road and I recorded the strings at Abbey Road. And... I played harpsichord and piano and guitar on it, but I was a smart enough guy to get out of the way and to let it sound like them and not me. So, no, it's, been, it's all been a gift. You know, I just see it all as all... And I'm grateful for it because, you know, we're nomads. We're, we're kind of... We're, we're troubadours, we musicians. We never know where the next gig is coming. You know, uh, I remember going through writing... And getting to write a song with Sting, for gosh, for God's sakes, I mean, my goodness. And then, you know, being having no work for about a month, being able to spend time with my family and, and most of my wise friends, and certainly my Christian friends... Say the right thing. They say God will provide. He loves you. He's giving you this break to be with your family. You're a husband. You're you're a father. But I, I'm assumed I'll never work again. <laughs> you know. So it's I'm grateful for all of it, and uh, it's been a privilege to be able to do my own music. As as you know, Michael, I've I've released a record regularly for the past twenty years, and they're really good records. Yeah. You know, and I'm really proud of them, uh, especially Evening Train and its sequel Wheelbarrow and of course William the Angel which i have that song has gotten out into the ether that song i wrote for my Yeah, my Kathy Mattea
1: won a Grammy for it. Didn't well, she?
0: Kathy recorded the, the the final song in that little song cycle which is called William the Angel. She recorded Good, good News and she won a Grammy for it. Yeah. The actual song William yes. the Angel. Yes. No, she recorded Good News right. which is the fourth song in the song cycle that's called William the Angel of which the first song is William the Angel and that's the song that I got to sing across the country uh, 40 times with the Boston Pops one year we toured that song and and a number of people uh, you know if you go online you type in william the angel churches sing that song and that song's gotten out there and there are still people that fly out to see my christmas concert just to hear that song in fact the one year i didn't do william the angel i got in a lot of trouble (laughs) actually got letters and uh emails complaints so i've been able to do my own stuff while having the privilege of dealing with these greats you know
2: broken wing He sheds a couple of tears Says I haven't seen my friends St. Paul or St. Peter In 15 years Doesn't matter the straight yellow line William the angel says the answers can be simple sometimes Why consider the smile in a baby's eye when it's wrapped in its mother's arms And consider the sound and the look the sky after a violent storm. says be careful haven't you got some place to go William says no just stay and wait while pointing to the remains of his wing, he is offered a ride but says thank you no thank you I'm an angel to a king i <laughs>
1: Tell me about the Christmas concert. You've collaborated with some big names on that, and that's an annual thing you do for a fundraiser. In 1993, I had uh, the, the first record you ever heard me
0: do, Michael. It's was called Heart of Hearts. And it was these two song cycles. It's not available now. It's it's an early record. I I'm not, I don't disown. I mean, I'm very proud of it. It's a very contemporary Christian record. And since then, I've I've worked in a in a broader zone. I've tried to be more of a, you know, just a singer-songwriter writing about spiritual and sometimes Christian issues, but not with that moniker on it, just so so the, the boards are cleared, and so people can, get, can enter in to this dialogue without having a label on it, whereas Heart of Hearts
1: was a record I wrote for my church. And, and even though you're calling that a very contemporary Christian record, it is musically beyond anything I've ever heard in terms of its breadth and how eclectic it is.
0: Well, it's rich in classical tradition. There's a brass quintet. Ted on there. There's a song called Trouble Today, which has Latin influences. Yeah, so it was musically very, very rich, and it didn't sound like you know an Amy Grant record or Stephen Curtis Chapman record as great as great as those records. A lot of those records are, and Stephen's amazing. But I, I, um, as is Amy, what a great writer she is. But I never really listened to a lot of that music. I, I listened to Aretha and Radiohead, and so. I um, Heart of Hearts was the first record where I ventured into writing music for the church I was going to at the time, which is St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Darien. And um, I, I just always loved Christmas music. I always loved it, I, all kinds of Christmas music, from carols to Vaughn Williams. And I always loved Christmas music so much that we just started giving a concert in 1993 at a church on a hill in Greenwich, Connecticut. And because I'd been with Chuck Mangione and Kathy Mattea had won the Grammy for Good News, a bunch of people came to it. And they loved it. And we did the whole Heart of Hearts song cycle. And then next year I'd released William the Angel. And so we did all of William the Angel and some of Heart of Hearts. And it became a thing. People loved. You're going to do the Christmas concert this year? So this is now 93, 94. And then finally we went to Purchase College, which is a state university of New York on the, on the Connecticut and New York border. And they have an amazing performing arts center that that everyone goes to, Yo-Yo Ma, the New York Philharmonic. It's an amazing place. And I started, my career really started taking off. I started working with Phil Ramone and Vanessa Williams and Pavarotti and and George Michael and Natalie Cole. And I was working um, as an assistant and associate producer of sorts with the great Phil Ramone, who basically, if if it weren't for Phil, I I don't know where I'd be now. I mean, the gift he gave me of bringing me to all these situations. And so the Christmas concert, I started doing arrangements of things in the mode of Ellington and Bob Marley, and I started writing more... Music And I put out Evening Train. And the Christmas concert expanded musically. I got a six-piece horn section. And I brought these great gospel singers, James D. Train Williams and Van Thomas in. And then when I wrote these Christmas songs for Vanessa Williams, she did the concert. We invited Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers, David Sanborn, the great alto saxophone player. Ossie Davis, who wrote, um, who read... Uh, Langston Hughes Christmas Poems and we filmed that Uh, a great guy in Stanford named Mike McCary who ran a company called Eagle Vision he loved the concert and he filmed it and it went out on PBS and then the concert really took off and it became a three night thing a three concert thing and now we're 24 years later you know and it's every year The concert gets deeper and richer. We've got Will Lee from the Letterman Show on bass. Sean Pelton from Saturday Night Live on drums. Joe Bonadio, my longtime collaborator, Joe,
1: uh, do percussion with Mark Cohn. Mark Cohn, yeah, yeah, Yeah,
0: Joe plays with Mark and plays. played with Sting. Did the Last Ship with Sting and um all these great people come as the horn players i talked to you earlier in this interview about andy Snitzer from paul simon and mike davis from the stones uh, uh don harris from niall rogers band plays lead trumpet and so it's just become this thing where if you're in the new york area around christmas time and you come to that concert you're going to hear music making at the very highest level, I think, and I'm not, I'm not taking, I'm not giving myself credit for that. I mean, I do think my arrangement work and my songwriting is is strong, but the guys I have up on that stage are just extraordinary. The guys and gals. So yeah, so that's that's a focal point of my year.
1: You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.